This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Mark Kohlenberg with Moral Code Footwear. What I love about retail are four things. The speed of it, the emotion involved, it's tactile, you can feel it, and it never gets boring. You're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry, recorded on location. Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Mark Rako uh, sitting in, and uh, also with me is uh, a great uh, host, of course, um, is Rebecca Fitz. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Mark. Here we are. Here we are working from home, like many people, our own little home studios. So uh, great to have you. And also with us from, I assume, his home is uh, Mark Kohlenberg. Hey, Mark, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. All right, so uh, maybe we could start at this point. Okay. Uh, I think it's, it seems like a very natural point. Um, tell us uh, about your business, but more importantly, can you tell us about where your business is right now? Uh, how did your business change from where you were the day before we knew about COVID-19? And is your business different today? Yeah, it's it's tremendously different. Um, you know, it's interesting because if you if you go back, you know, roughly you know eight to ten weeks before all this started, um, the the talk, at least in the the footwear and accessory business, was the tariffs from China. Um, our our business in the United States is wholly owned by a third generation uh, footwear and accessory manufacturer in India. Um, that is our exclusive supplier. We get everything from our own factories. Nothing is subcontracted out. And with with all the talk about the tariffs, we were really using this a, as a huge uh, competitive advantage in pitching our, our private label development, our you know our design work, our production work uh, to B two B customers. Simply because uh, it was totally immune from the entire tariff discussion going on with with all of the China production, and even in the first uh, I would say the first couple of weeks of the coronavirus discussion again it was everything was rooted in china it was like another nail in the coffin to any brands that were sourcing or manufacturing or shipping from china and and it really our phone was ringing off the hook just because we we were outside of it it didn't impact our business at all but in late march um the Prime Minister of India, uh, with about four hours notice, basically locked down the country and closed all the factories, all business, uh, just a very, very stringent stay at home um, with with pretty severe penalties, you know, for the entire population of India. So overnight, literally, um, that advantage turned into a disadvantage. We were were suddenly in the same boat as everybody else, didn't make a difference uh, that we were vertically integrated, didn't make a difference that we were manufacturing in India and, and the source of the coronavirus was in China. Um, so it, it, it really, as I said, it changed our business 100% overnight. You're, you're making leather accessories and shoes for folks. It changes overnight. And, and I know how dynamic and uh, liquid the situation is. So this is where you are now. The phone was ringing. What, what's happening now? Uh, the phone stopped ringing. Number one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of anxious. I'd love to hear the phone ring a little bit more, but, um, but you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, thank God, um, we are, we, we have so many facets to our business. We have a strong, uh, B2C component, you know, which is our, our direct-to-consumer site with moral code footwear uh, and accessories. And, you know, that, you know, obviously we have inventory already in the country. We've been shipping. There's been no interruptions. You know, we're, we're doing e-commerce every day. Um, we, we were just about to launch a second direct-to-consumer brand, um, really tying into the backstory of where we are located, which is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, and a hundred years ago, Milwaukee used to really be the 
the capital of the United States for shoe manufacturing, for tanneries. Um, you know, really the entire footwear business um, was was kind of headquartered in Milwaukee, and it was it was dirty and it was gritty, and um, you know, really really all those things that are genuine and true about the footwear business. So, our vision was, uh, frankly, on May one, we were launching a new direct to consumer brand called Milwaukee Boot Company. Um, all of those shipments uh, have been put on hold. The production is is mostly finished, but um, you know we're really unable to ship that inventory. So we've postponed that at the moment, um, roughly until the middle of June. But you know we're monitoring it on a day to day basis. Um, what I was referencing before in terms of the phone ringing off the hook was was our B two B business. So it it really had helped us you know diversify. So we're not tied up in certainly in in a single supply chain or or a single you know retail vertical as well. Um, but that B two B business you know pretty much it went from the phone ringing off the hook to uh, virtual silence. You know we deal we deal with a mix of um, you know, fairly large national retailers, some wholesale customers, and some smaller retailers. But as soon as the you know the the business shut down and you know stay at home edict was put into place, um, these guys pulled back significantly. We did get a handful of order cancellations. Frankly, you know, knock on wood, not as much as um, many other people did. Um, we did get some push you know, pushed back um, in DC dates, you know, for some retailers, but, you know, for the most part, you know, we have, we've, we've been very transparent as have our customers, which has helped no, you know, nobody's hiding behind this news. I think everybody has been, you know, yeah, honest and truthful and, and it really helps because, you know, we, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint, we, we have significant, dollars tied up in purchasing materials for customers you know ma making shoes is, is a is a really long fairly complicated process it can take up to 6 months from the you know the the time the de design is started to the time that that retailer has that finished product available uh, for sale in their store so a lot goes on before the consumer sees the product and a lot of costs have already been incurred Wow. So you just said a handful of um, fascinating things, um, hopefully not only fascinating to me, but a couple of them. One is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk out there and, um, you know, I'm on the front lines uh, for some physical retailers. So I'm talking every day. I'm being very transparent about kind of what we need from our, our landlords. So I, I can't agree with you more on, um, you know, just people being really real and there's really no place to hide. Um, so that, I think that's really important. But um, uh, number two is, you know, that e-commerce still carries on and you would think in some ways um, it would be a heyday for e-commerce or a bigger heyday for e-commerce um, because we're all home and, and that's, uh, you know, where we can mainly shop. Uh, but I think on the other side of that is, um, you know, and I'm, you know, just putting the bubble above a lot of people's heads. I'm, you know, worried about my job or uh, my job has already left me. So, um, you know, just from mm -hmm. the horse's mouth, how is the e-com part of that business? And, and shoes, I also think is an interesting um, category to shop for online. Um, yeah, really good question. So we had, I guess the best way I could say is it's unpredictable. Um, la last week, as an example, we, we have proactively pulled back, I would say, almost 95% of our digital ad spending uh, within the last three to four weeks. You know, once this, uh, you know, was, it was very evident that this, this wasn't going away fast, uh, simply from the perspective that, uh, number one, we wanted to conserve cash. Um, secondly, you know, we're, we're not, we're not Walmart. We're selling a better grade, uh, product in terms of footwear, better grade leather accessories. So, you know, we're, we're not couture, but, but we're certainly not, you know, Walmart or Target. So our thinking was, 
certainly shoes and accessories are typically um, an adjunct of people buying apparel. Uh, and apparel, in my opinion, is an adjunct of people buying Clorox wipes and toilet paper. So, um, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of low down on the priority list, you know, when people are buckling down and, and people are losing their jobs. And, and, and obviously, you know, the stock market is going down and 401ks are dropping. So the, the level of consumer confidence, you know, it, it is not there. And, you know, we wanted to take a, a fairly defensive posture in this and and not leave us exposed to try to you know honestly give us as much of a runway because there there's no there's no end date on this and I think that that to me is the thing that's really instilling you know the most amount of, of anxiety and, and fear not only with consumers but but also with business owners and and uh, and management of retailers um, I, I think if there was if there was a defined end date to all this you know you could kind of put your arms around it and say you know what we're gonna buckle down but you know a month from now or two months from now you know things are going to start to return to normal that that uh, variance that that just isn't there right now I think is is certainly putting some gasoline on the fire of anxiety. Um, so, and, and, you know, we, we did just open our own um, brick and mortar retail store in late November um, in Milwaukee. So that also has been closed, you know, for the duration. So, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit exposed on the brick and mortar side. We're certainly exposed on the, the B2B private label side. Um, but thank, you know, thank goodness our, our e-com business is, is good. And, and I started to say last week, so, you know, even with, um, you know, virtually, you know, almost 100% cutback in our spending on, on digital ads, we had three unbelievably strong days last week um, that exceeded, you know, on a daily level, really exceeded sales, even you know, I, I would say, you know, for the couple of weeks even before the coronavirus went into place. And I think what, you know, the key to it with us and the traffic to our site as a result, you know, is down significantly as well. But number one, we're converting better. Um, number two, we're doing a much better job on both content and direction for email and social. And I think number three, you know, really comes back to that that honesty and transparency in the messaging that you're, you know, you're using with with your consumer. And, you know, we've been honest with people, you know, we've been, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, really from the very beginning, you know, there are limitations and in, in what we can and can't do, but, um, you know, with a small staff and a relatively new startup, um, you know, we, we've performed pretty well with, you know, with our staff in these circumstances. Yeah, I'm loving what you're saying because people are growing muscles that they didn't think they necessarily had. Mm -hmm. And you know, the weight is put on you to, I guess, you know, come up with great content or, you know, great social media messages um, and you do it and, and you see the the results. I think that's, that's fantastic. And I, you know, I'll be honest, I'll confess, I, I do this on the show all the time where I'm like, <laughs> I, I really enjoy shopping. Um, and I'll say this about shoes. Um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to getting dressed for work and putting on shoes, frankly. Um, so hopefully there's some folks out there who feel the same way. And I, I think the longer we, um, mm at this, the, the more people who might have even shunned uh, those things are are going to look forward to them. Um, you know, the other thing that you said, and this is, again, probably um, a little bit of a dream, um, but I'm, I'm really always pulling for this um, myself, and particularly in New York, and we have the Garment District, there have been little rumblings out there. And I loved, by the way, I had no idea that Milwaukee was such a, a shoe manufacturing town. Uh, makes me want to go there and visit and, and learn more. Um, but do you think that there will be a push, uh, you know, because a lot of people also are saying this won't be the only pandemic we'll have? Um, to do manufacturing back in the United States. And, and God knows the employment numbers are, are high. Um, I know there are a thousand variables that would have to probably come together, but um, you're certainly the expert. 
Yeah, uh, you know, all I can really intelligently speak to is the the footwear and and accessory business. There, there's there's a small amount of footwear and accessory manufacturing going on in Los Angeles right now. The 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 problem, you know, shoes, you know, they look like a a pretty simple item. You know, I'll, I'll meet a friend at a party, and you know, they they kind of think you just put the leather in one end of a machine, and a, a shoe pops out the other. And all, all you know, we're we're far from, you know, brain surgery here, but, you know, in, in a single pair of shoes, you may have, you know, up to, you know, almost a hundred different materials, components, hardware, suppliers involved um, that, you know, have to be sourced and delivered and checked for QC and assembled and, and, and obviously the leather needs to be cut and stitched, da, 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 da. But it, it you know, for a fairly you know, kind of simple item that I think the general public takes for granted. A heck of a lot really goes into the manufacturing of shoes. And that really comes back to the comment I made earlier that it can take up to six months from, you know, the start of the process to, you know, when that final product is uh, delivered to a retail store. So, you know, the challenge with, you know, you you often hear it with politicians, you know, we want to bring back this manufacturing to the United States. This is ridiculous. And and this was even going on during the, the entire tariff discussion long before coronavirus was part of our daily vocabulary. The the issue is all of those different component suppliers need to be local as well. Otherwise, all you're doing is importing all these 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 various materials from all over the world and, and simply assembling them in the United States. So and, and that doesn't exist in the US right now. You know, again, it, it did a hundred years ago, but as soon as, you know, in the, you know, I would say in the late 60s and early 70s, when you know Americans got tired paying for expensive clothing and electronics and 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 all of those things, and you know manufacturing started to move offshore, you know you can't put the genie back into the bottle anymore. And I don't think consumers um, would be willing to pay the price to have footwear or you know leather accessories manufactured you know in the United States. And I think the other component to that, at, at least in our anecdotal research, is um, when you're dealing with a younger customer, you know let, let's say under 40, um, for the most part, you know that th- that age range, it really doesn't make a difference to them where something is made, whether it's made in the United States or elsewhere. I think you know with this coronavirus thing, you know there, there's a strong argument that there needs to be a discussion with essentials, you know, pharmaceuticals or personal protective equipment, these types of things that, you know, the, I, I think our, our leadership in Washington fell very, very short on. Um, but, you know, when it comes to shoes, you know, there, there, there's really no lack of shoes here and um, no shortage of shoes. So uh, nobody's hoarding, hoarding the shoes. So I, I think we're doing okay. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that, and by the way, what a um I think you're absolutely right. It's a little bit of a a fantasy. Same with the garment district. Um I don't think you hear the whole conversation though when somebody's like, Yeah, let's bring it back. Mm-hmm. Um or it is, it is. It's a great sound bite, but you know, aside right. from that, but at just I, I how sophisticated um making a shoe actually is, and even sometimes a garment. Um people kind of fall short on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the other thing is, I think, you know, not that I'm sitting in such a cushy position, but, you know, if I really needed work, you have to think about the American psyche and are they going back into these kinds of jobs or would it just, you know, would it change, would it pull some other Mm -hmm. fulcrum in our, you know, human psychology? Uh, And and that part of it wouldn't work either. So um, no, I get it, but that, that certainly makes sense. Um, So it, so it is a dream is what you're telling me. (laughs) Yeah, you know, even if you look at at China production and and, and even today, China still makes a disproportionate amount of of footwear coming into the United States. But in the last four or five years after Chinese New Year, even the, the millennial migrant Chinese workers, these you know these these young young people in their late teens, early twenties, that typically would you know migrate from the cities to these 
you know, footwear, electronic factories, even they don't want to do that anymore. So I, I think it really would be a stretch to to think that an American, you know, would want to, you know, sit at a, a machine stitching or cutting footwear all day long. Um, and, the, and then conceivably, you know, the labor rate, you know, uh, is a huge component of that as well in terms of how it would influence the final retail price. Right, right. Um, so this is, I think, a question on everybody's mind, and it's certainly... Um, while it's a totally dynamic situation, totally liquid, I'm having this exact same conversation you're probably having with um, vendors and uh, really everyone right now, is it's a hard part, hard place to negotiate from because we just don't know what the future is. The mm-hmm. nice thing is I do think that people are beginning to see a little spark. Um, I know in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, we're putting together a task force on how we'll open up. Um, there's a lot of talk um, in my industry about, you know, folks opening um, and how much inventory they'll have that they wish they had sold, but their actual physical door wasn't open or e-com slowed down. And, you know, how are folks going to, you know, going to move through that? And you really actually have a 360 degree view of, kind of what what might happen as we phase into um, our new normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the the suddenness that this was kind of um, thrown at the American public, the, it really didn't give, the, there was very little advanced planning or notice for people. It just, you know, everything within the span of a week, everything really kind of shut off. Um, I, and and I, I said to my wife, you know, after, you know, four or five days of this, you know, it just, you know, from my perspective, it really just speaks at the, the fragileness of capitalism, you know, that, you know, in four or five days, you know, with the entire country shut down, you know, the, the stock market's tanking, 401ks are tanking, you know, it's, you know, people are losing their jobs left and right. So I, you know, if anything, I think it's been a really hard lesson for, you know, the American public to learn, you know, what safety levers and steps do we need to have in place, you know, at all times in the future, because, you know, whether it's another pandemic or, or something, you know, we need to be much, much better prepared for this. But, you know, to speak of, you know, your question in particular, you know, regarding the the inventories, you know, with, and I, I applaud the governors, I think there's been you know, an incredible, you know, step up of leadership from, you know, many of the country's governors. I do too. Those are some heroes yeah. for sure. Yes. And, and, and I, I think, you know, at least, you know, they're, you know, on the positive side, they're, they're really looking at a data-driven solution here as opposed to, you know, a hunch or, you know, just, you know, a political motive behind it. But, you know, I think with, with rolling, um, you know, kind of turn-ons back to the economy, um, you know, it, the inventory levels, aside from, you know, groceries and, and basic necessities, when, you know, if you're talking about apparel and footwear, they're still there. You know, the inventories that were there before this started are going to be there afterwards. And I, I think there's enough of a cushion to withstand, you know, at least a couple of months. Um, but it's it will be important, you know, particularly for the bigger retailers, you know, with, you know, hundreds or even thousands of, of doors that, you know, are, are they going to have fresh inventory, you know, sizes available to, to really ramp up quickly um, and not further kind of cripple their efforts to, you know, turn the business back on again? Because so much, you know, so much is just in time inventory. So much is being controlled by the supply chain. You know, virtually nobody in retail owns their own manufacturing anymore. So you're also competing with every other retailer. But you know, when I hear, you know, I, I heard a couple of days ago that Gap, you know, has canceled all their spring orders, all their fall orders. You know, what this also does is complicate things further because the result of retailers kind of taking that, uh, you know, axe throwing, you know, uh, approach to things is the risk of many of these manufacturers just going bankrupt. You know, they don't have, you know, the necessary cash flow to move forward. They've already laid off their employees, you know, just as, you know, we're seeing on the retail side, you know, with a, you know, with discussion of a, a gradual flowing turning on of the economy, the same thing needs to happen on the manufacturing side and on the material side and components and everything else. And unless that is aligned with the expectations of the, the retail customer, there's going to be conflict there and it's not going to be perfect. Again, I'm looking forward to going into some stores, even if I some non-essential stores 
even if I have a mask on at first or whatever, um, you know, kind of rolls out in those first phases. And so it'll be interesting what what product is actually in there. And, you know, I'm not eager just because I'm part of the retail community for it to be deeply discounted. And it actually, I think, would be um, great if there was some stuff that was actually, you know, in season. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what actually goes out on the floor, you know, um, you know, based based on what you're saying, for sure. Mark, how are you thinking about uh, both in terms of your business and just, you know, the landscape out there in general? We, we've got a few components here, and you've you've kind of touched on a few of them, you and Rebecca. One is uh, the lead time for a lot of industries from actual manufacturing to hitting the ability to purchase them. So what we would normally be purchase, uh, manufacturing now would be out, mm-hmm. let's say, in six months or whatever. So we're, we're going to be facing a need to hurry up and catch up at whatever point that's possible with manufacturing because it goes not just with manufacturing but you know financial ability to purchase the manufacturing and and provide those those supplies to be manufactured and right now with a lot of businesses watching their bottom lines and trying to even keep the doors open they're not as in robust a cash position to to it to play, you know, uh, um, an advanced game. Yeah, no, you, you, I, Mark, you really hit the nail on the head. You know, I, um, I, my guess is that again, once, once the economy starts to turn on again, um, manufacturers and suppliers and factories are, you know, the, you know, the, the, the old days of doing business, you know, on a letter of credit or, or trust or an open account, I think are toast. You know, I, I think there's going to be a significant amount of gun shy suppliers out there that, you know, really got killed financially, you know, assuming they're still there um, that are, you know, really have no choice, but to require either cash up front or, you know, pretty substantial deposit before they even start the process of sourcing materials and, and, and booking production slots, you know, with, uh, with retailers just and and nobody's going to want to take that risk. Nobody's going to want to part with the cash. The retailers certainly don't have the cash. Um, and, and then even beyond that, you know, when you look at the, you know, the fashion industry, you know, apparel, footwear, accessories, the, the whole supply chain, it, it's, it's like watching, you know, it's like watching the Joffrey Ballet. It's, it's, it's a very, very tightly choreographed just in time, uh, arrangement to really maximize um, effectiveness of time and money, um, and and put that product out at retail, you know, at the at the exact opportune moment when it should be there, and remove it, you know, when it's time to do that as well. So, you know, ag- again, when when the economies turn on again. You know, it, it's not like, uh, you know, I, I heard a, a good analogy, you know, on our local news in Milwaukee a couple of days ago. Somebody somebody used the analogy. It's, n- it's not like a snow day where, you know, you're off of work for a day and the next day you just show up at work and it's as if nothing happened before. You know, now when you're looking at factories employing thousands of people, you know, and, and they, they suddenly go back to work, you know, are all those people going to be available? Are, are, you know, are, are, are they all going to be trained? You know, are the materials? Is going to be available, um, you know. It, it, when it comes to shipping, you know, half the airlines in the world are basically shut down. You know, all the cargo ships, you know, ocean containers are at a, at a huge um, loss right now. So, you know, you know, from the the supply chain side of things, you know, I I think you know even once the the demand and the desire is there for fresh product. Um, the ramp up period, you know, has the potential of being pretty significant before, you know, we achieve, you know, whatever that new level of normalcy is. It's not, it's not just like flipping a light switch. And, you know, there are a lot of complications people don't think about. And by the way, I'm not saying this, I'm sure you're not saying this to paint a picture of doom and gloom, no, but no, no. to really look at the the pieces on the chessboard so we can navigate responsibly and knowledgeably, um, you know, let's talk about those planes and those ships you know, it takes a lot of money and manpower to start moving, for example, planes back into operation Mm -hmm. that have been stored right now. Uh, And they're stored because they're expensive pieces of equipment, the aircraft, and you don't just like let them sit on the, out on the tarmac. Mm -hmm. You've got to properly 
take care of them. And you can't just go, okay, today we're flying all our planes again. It takes a lot of money, a lot of manpower to start putting them back into motion. And that's capital that these companies have to look at. How, how do we, (laughs) where's our capital to make that happen? Uh, and, and that leads me to what was going to be my, my follow-up question, Mark. Uh, and I'm really interested, Rebecca, for you to chime in on this too. Uh, you know, I've heard some people talk about this and I think it's really interesting that a lot of people are finding, speaking of ballet, they're finding a balancing act between trying to keep their own doors open and their own people paid while still preserving the relationships and frankly preserving the resources such as a supplier or a manufacturing plant, making sure they pay their bills so those places are still there, they still have good relationships with those people so that they can turn back on those mechanisms as positively and as quickly as possible. If you're staying a bit business xenophobic, if you will, and making sure you're just paying your own bills and you say, screw my suppliers or not maintaining those relationships, it's going to be very difficult to just go back to business as usual. How, how have you, well, at least that's the way I see it. How, how do you think about that Mark, and, and how as a business have you reacted to that? Well, again, that because we are wholly owned by, um, uh, our, our manufacturers. So, you know, we're really an arm of, you know, a, a footwear and accessory manufacturer. It gives us a huge advantage because, you know, we, we, you know, we don't have to worry about being a, a lower priority once things do get turned back on. Um, but, you know, in terms of just the, the operations of our day-to-day business, in the United States, you know, everything you said is, is accurate. You know, we've really, Again, I, you know, I, I learned the lesson a long time ago, you know, just, you know, if there's bad news, just get out there, you know, be honest, manage to it, don't hide behind it. Um, so really early on, even before the shutdown, and we realized that, you know, the business, you know, at a minimum would, would be slowed down. We reached out to, you know, all of our vendors, all of our suppliers, our employees, and, and we were just honest, you know, we're a, you know, roughly a three-year-old startup in the United States. You know, we have a small staff, um, and, you know, we're just going to all have to hunker down here. We're going to have to push payments out, you know, as long as we can. But I think about every day what you said, you know, it's it's relationships that we have built up um, over over a long period of time. And in terms of, you know, the the cogs that really make our our business operate. And the last thing that I want to do is um, alienate, you know, those partners that we have in operating our business. And, you know, once things do you know, come back to normal, you know, have to start all over and, and find new partners and, and, and kind of go through that exercise again. So it, it has been absolutely critical for me to, you know, proactively communicate with people, frankly, ask for favors where I have to ask for waivers, but, you know, do whatever is necessary to ensure Again, the the longest runway that we have cash wise to kind of weather the storm and you know be positioned to you know get back into business when when things open up again. Maybe this would be a great moment, uh, Mark, to pivot a little bit in our discussion. And can we unpack your business in a little bit more detail and? kind of lay out exactly how you're organized and what you physically do with the different parts? Sure. So we we launched um, we launched in the United States uh, January 1st of uh, 2017. Um, and, and at the time, we really envisioned kind of three facets to the business. Number one um, was a, a private label component, bas- basically um, designing, developing, sourcing, um, and producing footwear and accessories for both retailers and wholesale customers in the United States um, that that didn't have their own production or design staff, um, but were currently selling footwear and accessories. So, um, and we've grown that pretty rapidly. It's been a, it's been a, a pretty successful component of our overall business. And, and honestly, one of I think one of the key things that you know really has uh, contributed to that success 
is we we have an office and staff um, in the United States. So most most retailers that do their um, you know, footwear, apparel, you know, accessory, private label development, which is honestly is most of them, they have to have staff to deal directly with the factories or agents or suppliers all over the world. And it's it's a huge bandwidth issue. There's daily, you know, email traffic back and forth, specs, prototypes, dealing with multiple seasons at the same time. You really need a a, a pretty highly trained staff to do it. And I, I think our competitive advantage there is is we're supplying the staff, we're supplying the bandwidth, we're managing all the day-to-day communication. So all, all we do is is really interface initially with the, the retailer, the wholesaler, find out what their specific needs are, and then we're their main point of contact. They never have to deal with the factory, different languages, different time zones, or the email traffic. We do all that work for them. So um, it took us a while to kind of get traction on that side of the business. But you know, particularly, I would say within the last 12 to 18 months, the business, that piece of our business has been uh, really on fire. Um, much of it um, I would say in the last six months, you know, every time Trump would announce a new tariff, um, the phone would start to ring. So um, being based uh, with, with our manufacturing based in India, it, it was a, a big point of difference and a competitive advantage because most of that product in these categories is sourced in China. Um, and then we we actually started licensing um, a brand of a better grade brand of men's apparel when we launched, uh, which is Robert Talbot. And Robert Talbot is kind of an iconic um, producer of high end uh, men's neckwear and sport coats and dress shirts. Um, and we we licensed them for footwear and accessories and sold that on a wholesale level to places like Nordstrom and Zappos and independent retailers and, and really use that as an arm into the wholesale business. But unfortunately, Robert Talbot, the brand, not us, uh, had financial difficulties and liquidated that business, uh, you know, about eight or nine months ago. So um, it taught us a lesson. Uh, we, we lost some money. Uh, it you know, when Robert Talbot went south, but it it really, you know, it became very apparent to us that we wanted to control our own destiny and really not invest in, a, in, in another third party brand, not invest in somebody else's brand. So that was really kind of the inception where we decided we wanted to kind of double down on the D2C direct to consumer business. Um, we had um, we had already launched Moral Code as our first direct to consumer brand Um in uh, the middle part of 2017, but we we decided to create an, another brand, which I mentioned is is Milwaukee Boot Company. Which, again, our hope is that we'll be able to launch that uh, ecom site in early June. You know, hopefully, you know, once this coronavirus thing goes away. So, so our business now is really comprised of a private label component, and again, depending on the customer, some of these customers we design the shoes, um, develop all the the materials and uh, the patterns, uh, others, you know, just kind of choose from what we have already done and put their name on product. Um, but that's one half of our business. And then the other half of our business is really uh, direct to consumer e-com business that we do. Great. And by, and by the way, uh, just to jump, I, I'm sure you've had to tell the story before, but I'm really dying to know the origin of the name moral code <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and how, if at all, since the day that was decided to now, that meaning has has perhaps shifted in its context? Yeah, that's man, an- another great question, Mark. So, um, when we when we were looking for a name uh, for this to be launched D 2 C brand of footwear and accessories, uh, we were working at the time, you know, really with a, a pretty dynamic ad agency, and they gave us, you know, they started with a list of a hundred names, got it down to, you know, twenty, and then ten, and then five, and and you know, at the end of the day, kind of the oddball name among all the names, because if you look if you look at direct to consumer brands in the better grade footwear category, for the most part, there's e- there's either a component of the country of origin, you know, and typically that's Italy, Spain, or Portugal, and, and a kind of a wink and a nod towards European manufacturing, or or it has something to do with the founder's last name. So um, we we decided to kind of take that that oddball option and uh, and selected moral code. And 
you know, when, when I used to, I used to fly literally every week of the year up until about six weeks ago when I stopped. Um, but it was the most common question, you know, if you're just chatting with somebody on an airplane, you know, it's like, how did your name get this or how did your business get this name? Um, and it really never sunk in. We really never capitalized on it. And, um, once Trump came into office, um, it, it, it was amazing how many people really thought that we should lean much more heavily into our name um, and, and, and really kind of exploit the fact that we do have a moral code and we do try to do what's right and we do try to pe treat people fairly and you know, offer a high quality product at a fair price and, and, and really kind of develop that backstory a little more comprehensively than we had originally. Um, so long story short, before this, I, I would say going back three or four months now is, you know, at the beginning of the year, we decided um, we were going to undertake a, kind of a brand pivot for Moral Code, and in essence, almost a rebranding, just because the market over, and this is long before coronavirus, but the market really had changed tremendously. The casualization of workwear had changed. You know, all the all the investment bankers in New York no longer are required to wear a, a jacket and a tie to work. And, and as a result, footwear and accessories have also kind of come into um, that, that new reality that guys don't want to necessarily wear a Goodyear welted leather bottomed wingtip um, because they're much more comfortable in a dress sneaker or a chuck a boot or something much more casual. And, and I think the other thing that we recognized is everybody is really clamoring for that that younger consumer. And, and you know, the guys that were wearing those traditional leather dress shoes were getting older and older by the day. So we undertook a pretty, uh, a pretty comprehensive process to pivot the brand and, and, you know, just to distill it, really the only thing that we intended on keeping was the name. We were going to start all over with product. We were going to, um, instead of just offering product for men, we were going to open it up to women. We were leaning heavily into the sustainable side of the footwear business, which um, many brands have undertaken um, in the last year, you know, frankly, both in apparel accessories and in footwear. Um, and, and really um, something much, much more casual and kind of everyday wear as opposed to something that, you know, it, it either is, is totally work wear or is worn, you know, for a special occasion. So we had completed that, you know, kind of brand overhaul. We, we literally had just gone through and produced our first prototypes and had made corrections to them. And we were envisioning the Moral Code brand relaunching brand new e-com site, uh, brand new targeting, new customer, new verticals uh, on August 1st. But, um, you know, now that that date is history and we're really going to have to, you know, once this all sorts out with the coronavirus, kind of regroup and, you know, establish a new target date for the brand. I still... You know, having said that, I still believe strongly in, you know, the roots of this rebranding, the, the casualization, opening it up, you know, much more to women's products. And even before this all occurred, we were seeing, you know, almost 35 percent of the traffic to our e-com site was women. And, and we, you know, either buying for their significant other or husband or boyfriend or whatever. Um, so we want to have something to offer them. And I, I think the the whole sustainability conversation in fashion is not going away. So again, we have a huge advantage because we're vertically integrated. We have our own tannery. Um, we do all of our own work. Again, nothing is subcontracted out. So, you know, based on that, um, you know, we were, you know, really developing new technologies, new processes, you know, both for materials and leather development to produce a much more sustainable product than, you know, typically footwear is. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited and anxious to get back into that, you know, really as soon as the country gets back on track. So, uh, Mark, before we conclude, uh, we, we, we'd love to ask you some uh, questions a little more on the human side, a little more personal in nature. Uh, and, uh, maybe I could start with this. Um, I, I imagine that your, your job does, uh, mean from time to time you do need to travel. Uh, have you been to, to China a lot as a result of your work? Yeah. You know, my, my wife, uh, is, is really never happy with my travel, but I've been doing it for, 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 for more than 20 years. 
um, right before the coronavirus thing. You know, I, I, I'm in New York probably every other week. I was in New Orleans for a travel accessory trade show, and I flew through Hong Kong just before all this stuff started. So, um, you know, I, you know, since in the last three years, you know, the majority of my, you know, international travel has been back and forth uh, to India, you know, generally by way of Asia, but domestically in the U.S., you know, I'm, I'm typically on a plane every week. Um, the footwear business, um, I'm not so I, I'm, I'm not certain about the apparel business, but the footwear business again up until all of this started was was somewhat um, archaic in its approach to technology. And you know we still produce an insane amount of samples every season that are time consuming and very expensive to make. They're all made by hand in a sample room. They're not made on a production line for efficiency. Um, and then they're they're shipped to us, and and we literally physically drag these samples to customers over and over, so they can you know look at them, touch them, feel them, comment on on, on them, and you know change them you know if they want to, um, you know we you know and when I say we, I'm speaking of the industry. Uh, you know the industry has tried many times to. Um, you know, use technology uh, to to incorporate a degree of automation to this process and reduce costs and 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 reduce the time that it takes. But you know, at the end of the day, most retailers still want to touch and feel that product uh, before they buy it, and uh, it's it's not efficient at all, and it adds significant cost and time uh, to to you know the ending retail price of the product. Gotcha. And so when you do travel a lot, how do you, uh, not to get too personal here, but how do you stay connected with your wife or your family? What is it you do to stay grounded and keep that connection going? Um, you know, given time changes and locations and the fact that, you know, when you go to these places, you want to make sure you are able to enjoy and immerse in those cultures and be a part of those cultures while still connecting back to your home base. Yeah, I, again, I've been, you know, the the, the interestingly enough, the sh the shoe business, you know, is, is really all over the world. I have depending on who I've been, you know, working with over the years, you know, I've spent a I spent a lot of time in in Germany, which was my first footwear job. Probably made a hundred trips there. Um, a lot of time in Brazil, a lot of time in China, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, and Mexico, uh, and and now in India. Um, and I've always, you know, I've I've literally always called my wife and kids every single night that I'm gone, whether it's domestic or or international, and stayed in touch. And you know, it, even with you know the distance of being away, and when my kids were much smaller, it was it was certainly much more difficult, but it it really has paid off. And you know, just just that you know kind of. Uh, you know, hands hands on approach to it, and my kids have a love for travel. You know, they've been all over the world as well. My wife has too. So, you know, it's just that you know, kind of immersing and exposure to different cultures that you know makes the world smaller. And 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 now, you know, today it's so much easier than it was you know a while ago, just in terms of hopping on a plane and, and getting somewhere. But you know, in particularly in India, you know, th there are some technology uh, limitations. You know, the, the internet goes on and off. The power goes on and off. Um, and, you know, the, you have to make amends for that now and then. But for the most part, you know, it's pretty easy now to stay connected almost anywhere in the world. And, um, and, 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 and I take advantage of it. You know, it was amazing to me when I was in Australia, I, I didn't feel any different technologically in terms of my connectivity and my access to, and my ability to even upload files and just everything than when I was in New York uh, and my father lived in Dubai for a year. Mm -hmm. And when we would have video chats, I was always, it was always remarkable that there was no perceptible delay. Wow. Wow. You know, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it makes it, it makes it a lot easier to keep in touch. All right. Let's talk shoes real quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you can, you can speak outside the sphere of your brand mm -hmm. on this if you wish, but um, in your life, what's the pair of shoes that you've acquired that have made you the most excited, uh, w whether or not you're even a shoe guy, you know, what, what's, what's one pair that you said, Oh damn, I'm so happy I have these. Well, it, it's kind of a funny story. So, um, my, my first, you know, 
uh, entree into into the footwear business was uh, with Allen Edmonds uh, that are uh, headquartered just just north of Milwaukee. Um, and, and again, this goes back you know quite a few years. But at the time, you know, I, I was a young kid in my early twenties, and Allen Edmonds was this total aspirational brand. You know, it was part of a uniform. You know, you've made it when you can afford a pair of Allen Edmonds. And I was introduced to the owner of Allen Edmonds at the time, uh, John Stolenwerk, when when it was still privately owned, uh, for an informational interview. And um, I, I went, I, I had a pair of Allen Edmonds black wingtips, you know, which was the uniform at the time. And I wanted to get them shined. So I, you know, I looked perfectly uh, presentable during during this interview uh, in Port Washington, about 30 miles from Milwaukee. So I drove down to the Pfister Hotel, which is uh, one of the iconic uh, historic hotels in downtown Milwaukee. And there was an old gentleman that used to have a shoe shine stand there. And, and he was uh, he was the guy with the reputation of providing the best shoe shine in Milwaukee. So I thought, you know what, if I'm going to go up and meet the owner of Allen Edmonds. I'm going to have, you know, this guy at the Fister Hotel shine my shoes. So run into the Fister Hotel, pick up my shoes, change into them. I'm walking out to my car to drive up to Port Washington for this interview. And it's probably about a 45 minute drive. And I realized I locked my keys in the car. I'm like, oh my God. And this is pre-cell phone time. So Go back to the yeah. hotel, find a payphone, get a quarter or whatever it was. Call my wife. Yeah, you, you, you. Those days you lock your keys in your car. It's a half day gone. Yeah, literally. So call my call my wife. Fortunately, I was able to get a hold of her. She drives down to the hotel. You know, gives me a replacement key. Hop in my car, speed up to Port Washington. And I had heard all along, uh, you know, that when John Stolenwerk meets somebody, instead of you know when he shakes your hand, instead of looking you in the eye, he looks down at your feet uh, first. And it, that was absolutely true. So, you know, I drive up there. I'm as nervous as hell because I'm in my early 20s and sweating. And um, I'm introduced to him. I shake his hand. He looks down at my feet and he goes, wow, that's a good shoe shine. So that <laughs> that will forever be in my mind as my favorite pair of shoes, because honestly, um, that's that's what got me in the door with Alan Edmonds. And, you know, my career since then really has been in the footwear, better great footwear business. And, you know, I, I have that guy at the Fister Hotel that shined the shoes and certainly John Stolen work to thank for, you know, giving me a chance and betting on somebody with zero experience to get involved in the shoe business. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we often uh, offer the opportunity for our guests to have a bit of a final thought, uh, share a reflection either on our conversation or anything else that they might like to leave behind for our audience. Do you have anything that might be on your mind that you'd like to share? You know, I just, you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, kind of more experienced in my career path, you know, I, I, you look, you tend to look at things a little more objectively than just the present. And I think, you know, as, as a, as a business, you know, manager uh, and you know, e- executive in in the fashion industry, this really, the, the situation the entire country finds itself in, you know, really gives us an opportunity. And and you know, as any president or CEO or senior manager in any business, to step up, to do what's right, um, to you know, care for people, your employees, your customers, um, and and frankly. You know, as as I think we've seen, you know, there's a bit of a political, you know, stance we've seen in the last couple of weeks. It's just, you know, we can't necessarily depend on leadership from Washington all the time. So, you know, we need to to say what's right. We need to do what's right. And we need to take a stand. And it never gets boring. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, until next time, for Rebecca Fitz. Thanks, Mark. All right. I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Retail Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.